This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Hey, welcome back to the Struck Podcast. This is episode 19. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. And in today's episode, got a bunch of really good topics, actually. So we're going to cover uh, some a bunch of things with the Boeing 737. Their public comment period has begun. Uh, we're also going to talk about Jet Time, which is an interesting, quick little story, a Danish company. Um, we're going to chat about some of the big four airlines as their losses this year have come to light and we're starting to compare to, you know, Q2 last year to Q2 this year. So we're going to chat about that. Uh, there's been some a really interesting conversion. The uh, Embraer Praetor Legacy 450s actually have a conversion kit now to go into the Praetor 500. We're going to talk a, bit, a little bit about the engineering that goes into a conversion of a, of a business jet, which is a really fascinating thing to think about. And then we're also going to chat some more about uh, 737 radomes, um, a airworthiness directive just put out on the Boeing 737. And lastly, we'll chat in our electric tech uh, segment about the EHANG EVTOL, which just made the first passenger trip around uh, Yangtel, China. So let's jump in here with uh, some of the 737 MAX stuff. So the public now has 45 days as of July 21st to comment on the proposed changes. Mm-hmm. So tell us, what, is this, what does this mean? Well, for any sort of major uh, changes, uh, special conditions, uh, there's all rule changes. There's always a public comment period because these changes end up being having the, the rule of law essentially applied against them. And so when you make new regulations or laws, you want to have a public period to discuss those to see what the public feedback is. In this particular case, I'm not sure what the public feedback is going to be. Uh, but the FAA has to respond to all the comments. And so they may get thousands of comments back on this. Whether they're valid comments or not, you still have to respond to them. In situations where we've seen a lot of public responses in uh, sort of critical or controversial areas, you kind of get this wide range of responses. And then as the FAA, I don't know how they must lock a couple of people in a room to go through all those responses. Yeah, and, it sounds terrible. And it, right, because you can write as much as you want for and as a response. So you could have 50 different comments in a response. So the FAA has to go through those and sort them out and put them in the groups and try to respond to each one of them. So wow. it takes a long time, right, which is why they keep keep saying like the, the 737 is not going to be flying and a, and a couple other minor reasons uh but it seems like the certification open public comment forum thing is going to shove it out to december of this year before those airplanes get going again plus they have to uh, qualify all the all the pilots which is going to be another hurdle but they could actually probably start that now uh, so i understand the need for open dialogue on this i just i uh, there are times i wish think the public has no idea in the specificity of these changes and be able to add anything to them. That's what the FAA is for. And that's what yeah. all the DERs are for. Right. And yeah. So, um, so if we'll I see. write these jet engines should be more shaped like watermelons, the yes. FAA has to respond to that. 
Thank yes. you for your. We you know we don't believe they should be shaped like watermelons. We believe that, that's right. That's, right. They'll do, they'll do that, or they'll say it doesn't fit the the uh, the question or the comment isn't applicable to the particular situation. Uh, yeah. But they have to respond to them. So you could say like <laughs> uh, the the added uh, angle of attack sensor uh, may cause uh, the improper activation of some other system. Pick it. You just just pick it pick it out of the hat, and they have to respond to that. And then someone has to go look. And then what the FAA is going to do is they're going to talk. If they have something that is even questionable, they're, they're clearly going to throw it back into Boeing. And Boeing gets to see those comments. So Boeing's go, the engineers at Boeing get to see those comments and get to respond to them. And it, it's sort of a negotiated hmm. outcome. But it's it's not. We've been working on this for more than a year. Yeah. What's going to be added at this point that we don't already know? I don't know. And then you have to go through the once the FAA gets checkbox off you still have to do all the, the foreign certifications too so it isn't like boeing's out of the clear on this there's still a lot of work to do yeah well that's an interesting process i guess it's still good that the public does have a chance to sure say what they need to say i mean that's i guess kind of kind of democracy in action maybe. it is well yeah. yeah it is it, it is it is but it isn't you have a system in place right now in which uh you can direct comments to in this particular case I think just because of the visibility of it, they had to do that. I'm, I'm just never sure what it adds to the the end result. Yeah. So quirky story that we'll just touch on this Danish company, Jet Time, two words, uh, it hadn't basically didn't survive the COVID situation, um, went under. And it says, nevertheless, JetTime's owner has already registered and received a certificate for his new company, JetTime, just pushing the two words together, and expects it to start chartering flights <laughs> in 2021 using some of their old key employees as well as five of the previous Boeing 37s. This seems bizarre. I think like, I realize that companies are shielded from liability. Like you have, you know, Watermelon LLC goes out of business. You right. can then just like start a new LLC, right? Like, and those assets are gone and creditors can come after the LLC, but not, you know, you personally or whatever. But like, I, I, does this seem weird to you that they just made another business that quick? It does. There's something called uh, the corporate veil or piercing the corporate veil. You can't be malevolent and do bad things, intentionally skirt creditors uh, by because you have a corporation veil. In this particular yeah. case, that's what exactly it feels like. You're like, I'm going to take all the money out of this thing and shovel into a new company. Good luck to all my creditors on the <laughs> yeah. other side, and and uh, come get my airplanes. Now, let's just let's, if you ever watched that show on airplane repo, if you don't pay the airplane bills, someone's coming to get those airplanes. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about that. So you got if you want to keep those airplanes, you better keep them locked under someone watching them all the time because they're going to get repoed. Airplane companies are not playing. And I, I remember uh, when I worked in Wichita, there was a, one of the repo guys that I knew that used to work for Cessna. They go down to South America all the time and bring airplanes back, which has got to hmm. be scary as all get out, right? You're walking down to South America. You're flying down to South America. You go into this remote field. You find the person that runs the airport and saying, can you get the keys? You're probably paying him or paying the desk person to get the keys. And then, you know, you're trying to fuel the airplane and fly back to fly back to America or wherever they need to take the airplane that's serious business so even though they, they may skirt the bankruptcy here they're not going to skirt the marketplace they yeah. totally won't that's yeah. interesting yeah this struck me as funny so i wanted to bring it up so let's uh shift to 
the U.S. Big Four and who's kind of been hit the hardest. So between Southwest, Delta, American, and United. And I personally didn't realize that Southwest is that is about half of the size of those three other companies. Yeah. Um, Delta, United, and American all do about, I guess, 45 to 50 billion in revenue a year. And Southwest does about 25. But mm-hmm. all of them essentially have converged on the same point, which is about 2 billion in revenue in second quarter of 2020. So for right. Southwest, that's a much lower drop off because they're only coming down from 6 billion a quarter right. rather than dropping down from 12 billion a quarter. But that's right. Um, what do you think about this? I mean, who do you think is going to come out on top as far as these four or, or what kind of predictions do you have? Well, it, it's all due, or at least mostly due to the lack of international travel. So Southwest only has a selected number of flights that are outside the continental U.S. Uh, to Hawaii, uh, Puerto Rico, and I think Mexico now too. So they're relatively limited on their international travel. And international travel is expensive. If, if mm-hmm. you remember flying, if you've ever flown over to the to uh, Europe, it's it's relatively expensive. It's it's a lot cheaper to fly across the United States and longer flights than it is to just hop the pond and where you're paying double, triple the amount. So there's a huge profit center in those international flights, and Southwest has never really done that, uh, which in this particular case is going to help them tremendously because uh, most of the travel that's going to happen from the United States is going to be within the United States. So mm-hmm. United and American and Delta are really going to struggle, and that's why you see all the 747s getting retired, all the big international airplanes are all getting retired because I just don't think international flights going to happen for a while. Yeah, the last 747. Did you see that? The thing that Qantas did, they made like this kangaroo pattern as they did made their, their logo. Last, yeah, their yeah. last 740. Yeah. Uh, I don't understand it. Do you have, have, you, have you seen that uh, recently? Mm-hmm. Like they go fly these patterns. And I think what a colossal waste of fuel. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't understand. I mean, I understand taking the airplane out and doing like a celebratory flight for the how successful the aircraft has been. And Boeing's actually made a big deal of the 747 retirement because I saw an interesting uh, tweet the other day about the comparison between the A380 retirement and the 747 retirement. The 747 retirement is a lot of hubbub and people uh, being nostalgic about the aircraft and the A380 is crickets. <laughs> yeah, no one cares, yeah. huh? Why no one sees the care. Uh, I think the length of service, the 380 hasn't been around nearly as long as the 747. Mm. And the 747 has always been considered that super duper uh, smooth flying airplane. And uh, the A380 was just around, wasn't around long enough to build up that kind of legacy. So here in our engineering segment, there's a couple of interesting things we're going to touch on. But first, let's talk about, let's stick with Boeing. So there's an emergency airworthiness directive put out just recently. So on July 23rd, and this is about a bunch of different 737 models. So can you take us through this? I mean, what's going on, Alan, with this uh, this directive? Well, they parked a number of 737s because of the COVID. And one of the worries when you park and pickle an airplane, basically 
it's decommission it. Raccoons in the in the jet engines. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean everything kind of gets put in stasis, uh, and so you if it's, it's very similar to when you're going to park a car in the garage, like you're going to overseas for two years and you got your uh, car, you, you just don't leave it sitting in the garage like that because bad stuff happens, right? You want to drain the fuel tank, you want to take the antifreeze out of it, you want to put preservatives in it to make sure when you get back mm-hmm. there, it'll fire back up again. Well, the same thing is this in airplanes. There's actually a, a list of things you go do. Well, the problem is, is that when you bring that aircraft back into service, that not everything works like it should, and some of the components aren't necessarily visible, and they're not required to go double check them. And there are some valves in the 737 engines that are not working correctly, which leads to engine shutdown. And the FAA has, I think they had four cases of engine shutdown on the 737 over a variety of models. So the FAA is really concerned that because both engines left and right use the same valve, uh, that you could have a simultaneous engine shutdown, which would make you a glider, which is not good. Right, oh, yeah. 737 does glide well, but it's not going to glide all that far. Uh, so, so now that uh, the emergency directive is like, hey, we got to go look at these things. And it, it, I think that's sort of a, one of those unexpected outcomes that I was anticipating happen. Like when you mop all airplanes as fast as that happened, do you are you sure that everything's up and running as well as it should be? So I'm glad the FAA has stepped into it. Clearly, the mechanics and the airlines are on top of this and are watching this because this is one of those war, real serious concerns is when you bring a lot of airplanes back, all of a sudden do you have problems and can you nip it before it gets to be too big? So so these shutdowns happened, that. I assume, as they're firing them up on the ground or like how did they avoid any issues, like no, any they crashes had, this, far, think, this far? No, I think they had some of them shut down in the air. At least that's, that was my read on it. Yikes. Um, well, the engine the aircraft can fly one engine and that's why mm. there's two. Uh, uh, but it's just a uh, if the probability if if there's a malfunction a, a certain malfunction inside the engine and you have that same thing left right on left yeah. engine and right engine that's scary to think about yeah it is I'm, I'm not, it let's, is let's let's continue to demonize the 737s 737 is the worst <laughs> aircraft of all time now I don't uh, want any part of the yeah. yeah I don't want no, any part it, of it. It's a really, really good, reliable airplane. It, it was never meant to be shut down like this. Uh, and that's one thing about any sort of mechanical device is once it's up and running, you want to keep it up and running. Yeah. I don't care what it is, a car, a train, a boat. When you mop all anything, it just doesn't always come back to that place it once was. Those mischievous raccoons always Machinery. causing trouble. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Gremlins. <laughs> and then, yeah. so sticking with the 737, you said there's a, a radome that also might have some issues on a consistent basis. So what's the story with, with this uh, this report that Boeing yeah, put out? There was a really interesting event that happened about a year and a half ago. So it's like the end of 2018, Aeromexico was flying a 737 into Tijuana on approach. So they're actually coming in to land. And there's a loud thud. And when the pilots got out, they could see that the nose radon was severely damaged. And it looked like they had hit a bird. I mean, my first look at that, mm-hmm. I remember yeah, when that happened was... looking, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they hit something. They clearly must have hit something. They hit a bird, but there was no blood or feathers, which is usually indicative of hitting a bird. And so the, the press headlines, and the, I think the pilots actually said they thought they had hit a drone because they were so close to the ground when it happened that 
if they didn't hit a bird and the only thing around is a drone so they assumed mm-hmm. they hit a drone and it became this big press thing about could be a or, raccoon or drones could be an right. airborne raccoon definitely could have been uh maybe, but, maybe a so, bird had a raccoon that it picked up sorry <laughs> good dropped it good it's like an eagle dropping a fish exactly yeah, yeah. right well the Boeing got involved and did a, a post-mortem on it and uh, started checking the radome for DNA. Didn't see any. Mm-hmm. Didn't see any uh, the, the usual suspect like parts of birds, bird feathers, bird blood, bird pieces. Didn't see any of that. And they also started looking for drone pieces. Didn't see anything like that. And then they realized yeah. that the there's a there's a seal. That's on, that's actually on the airplane. So the radome sits on the on a ring on the on the front of the airplane. There's a, a bulb seal that goes around it, and at the bottom of that, there's a gap. There's like an eight inch gap at the bottom for let fluids and things drain out, so, but it also lets it equalize pressure. So as you fly up to altitude, there's there's pressure, and as you come back down, there's more pressure closer to the earth. There's about a twelve ish psi difference 10 to 12 psi i don't remember exactly somewhere in that range mm-hmm. so what has happened is they replaced that seal but they didn't leave that gap in the seal they pretty much enclosed it with the seal all the way around the periphery so the airplane flew up to altitude all the air escaped as it came back down all the pressure built up on the outside and boom collapsed that radome to the point it looked like it had hit something it did look yeah it's very very yeah. much destroyed yeah if I was a pilot, I would think 100% I hit something. And it, and it had to sound loud. And the air noise after that had to be tremendous. And as you're on approach, you just don't like those things to happen. Like bad noises are serious. Uh, but it is interesting that I have seen other radomes do similar things. And you're like, man, what is up with that radome? Like the, the front of it's collapsed in. Uh, and they'll say, well, we think we hit a bird. I'm like, no, nah, that's not a bird. Because there's, no, there's just no guts anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wonder if they're having issues in general with these seals, that they're oversealing these radomes, and mechanics aren't thinking about the pressure deltas, and all of a sudden you get these collapsing radomes, which is a pretty serious thing. Parts, parts could come off of that and go places you don't want them to go. All right, and so the last thing I want to cover real quick in this segment is uh, converting the Embraer 450 into the... 500. So mm. how, how do they do this? I mean, this is pretty interesting because they said the range of these planes is going to increase from 2,900 nautical miles to 30, 3340. Mm-hmm. And its payload is going to grow from 800 to 1600 pounds at full fuel. So, and then they're upgrading avionics, a lot of other things. I mean, how do they yeah. do this? Is this a really like significant process to get recertified? Like, what does this look like when they convert a plane like this? Well, most airplanes are derivatives of previous models. Uh, ergo, the Cessna Citation and all the variations on that airplane. Same thing for Learjets. They really haven't changed all that much over time. Uh, the Beach King Airs haven't changed that much over time. The Bonanzas and all the variations on those. Uh, even the Cirruses haven't, you know, for that sort of 20 to the 22, there, there wasn't huge changes made. So what Embraer did when they upgraded to the 500 uh, that they basically used the 450 as the baseline and made it made the wing a little bit bigger, longer, more aerodynamic, which allows you to take more load on and also to load more fuel in. So there, as a, it's not a marketing ploy, but it is a, I'm sure it's a fundraiser for them, cash, it helped raise cash. And it looks like they did the work down in Hartford, not very far from here, mm-hmm. uh, where they uh, did all the engineering work to basically make the wing more efficient, put more fuel in it, move the fuel probes around so they could gauge the fuel that they added to it and uh, 
fix the or upgrade the avionics. So if you had bought a, a 450 back in like 2016 and the and the 500 came out in like 2018, you could actually upgrade it. And it may make more sense to upgrade it than to buy a new airplane. It yeah. probably does, and it probably makes the airplane more valuable at the end of the day. You have to trade it off, but it, it's the 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 marketing was on it was interesting because you could fly from Miami to Seattle. Yeah, which a is a flight. long way yeah, to fly. For sure. Long flight. That's a, it is a long flight. That's oh, pretty cool. All right, in our final segment here, let's cover e-hang. So we've been talking about electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. And this one just made the first the world's first commercial trip with passengers. So e-hang was established in 2016. Um, it's a China-based company and uh you know, in this big race to get a basically essentially electric air taxi into commercial service, it looks like they've won. So this thing looks, it's wow. interesting. It's uh, kind of, it's pretty small. I guess you can hold probably two passengers. And this was like a little sightseeing trip around Yangtel, China. So what are, you, what, what are your thoughts on this right here? If I remember this correctly, I think this is the aircraft which wasn't "Quote unquote certified." It's like an amusement park ride. Is that the way they're treating it? So it's like be able to fly in certain areas back and forth to this hotel. Essentially, is what it was. It's like a shuttle for the hotel. Hmm. And, okay. And it and it hadn't been through the same rigors like all the other European, U.S. based uh, doesn't Japanese doesn't matter where you are. Pretty much mm-hmm. everywhere else is some sort of certification or approval when you put a human inside of an aircraft. You want to have some semblance that the aircraft's not going to crash all the time. But in some odd circumstances, like this hotel in this region got authorization to fly these things. Uh, so now there's consternation in the eVTOL area, like, what's the deal? <laughs> how, how are they doing this? Uh, and, and is it advantageous for uh, the Chinese uh, government structure to promote their industry by basically not making them go through the rigors of certification and they're therefore allowing them to speed up the process and then maybe go off for certification somewhere else. It just seems unsafe. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't drive in a car in which it hadn't been crash tested and it has some sort of, you know, validation system. I would definitely would not be in an aircraft that didn't have some level of review going on with it. And this one doesn't seem, and it may be perfectly safe. Maybe, maybe have a great track record. It's just not worth risking your life over. Yeah, so I guess back in March, the company obtained their first operational flight permit. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's I guess that's valid in a couple different countries. But, yeah, like you said, it there's something a little bit off or just a little bit different. And right. it was only going 60 miles per hour. Um, it did a short little loop. It's got a 20-mile range. So I think mm-hmm. maybe you're right here that this is just more of like a uh, yeah, it's a commercial like an tourism. amusement park ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Like you're at your own risk. Good luck. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and speaking of which, there's a um, a company called Revel here in the U.S. That I guess they're based out of New York, but I see their little mopeds all over D.C. And mm. you know, you can rent these mopeds just like you can rent a scooter. Yeah. And they're electric. And I guess they had their first person killed on one recently in New York City. I think she was actually a reporter. But oh boy, yeah. Anytime it just like for me, I like the scooters. I I bought a scooter, but those mopeds have to obviously drive in traffic. They do come with a helmet you can put on. But for me, that's like I'm not qualified to drive a motorcycle. 
and I know no. what happens if you fall off, even going 30, a moped, like all your skin gets, all, all your skin gets taken off and you, <laughs> yeah, it does. it's like a, like there's a huge jump from scooter, for example, or bike to a, a moped, even if it only goes 30 miles per hour. Yeah. And, and these things, even if it's just like tourism, just shooting around the city, if that falls out of the sky, you're all, you're all gone. So right. I don't know. It's that's, yeah, I guess that's, that's feels a little troubling to me that. If they don't as regulate as heavily and certify, like you said, then ugh, good luck is, is a tough pill for me to swallow personally. Yeah. Yeah. Buyer beware, right? Yeah. And so last thing I want to kind of touch on quickly is the idea of like these vertiports, these vertical takeoff and landing air pa- airports or pads. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, where do you feel like is the most viable place to put them? I've seen some really cool renderings of... You know, essentially they put four stilts above a highway that's going through a city and they put a nice flat pad. So cars are going underneath it. You know, these little choppers are laying on top of it, mm-hmm. uh, on top of buildings. Or some people are proposing that waterfront areas are probably the best locations. Um, what do you think <laughs> are, are maybe a, a best future spot for them? Well, let's just go through a history of where aircraft land. Aircraft, for the most part, uh, now you, you don't see that as much today, but originally airports in the, were in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Even around New York City, they were in the middle of nowhere on an empty field. And the reason they were were that way was because they were less likely to land into populated areas. And even the helicopters that are, if you around New York City, they've had a number of accidents in the river or near the river, where the helicopters are taken off and had some sort of. Um, mechanical issue and plummeted down to earth. So I'm really dubious of putting a lot of inexperienced pilots landing on top of buildings. I think that's a mistake. I think if you landed a mile or so from where your destination is in an unpopulated area for the time being, that would help. Until we get to something that's more autonomous, like Tesla's done on the driving aspect, where they and even on SpaceX, right? Let's just take SpaceX as an example. So the SpaceX, where they're landing the rockets vertically on the on the platforms, you know, SpaceX is not landing those things in Houston, right? They're not landing them in a populated area. It's landing them out in the ocean. So even though they have a at this point a relatively good track record of being able to land those things on a moving platform in the sea, they're still not going to land them in the city because mm-hmm. Bad stuff can happen, and I, I'm struggling because I, I, Lilium put out a little press release about they don't think that the Lilium uh, travel distances should be less than 20 kilometers, which is about 12 miles. And the argument was, if well, if it's less than 12 12 miles, then you have to have like landing areas all over the place. You'd have to want to have to have one at your dry cleaner. You have to have one at the pizza place. You have to have one at the elementary school. So you'd end up having these all these places where you'd have to have landing platforms, and it just explodes in terms of um, the number of, of, of landing sites you would have to have. And their suggestion is, well, once you have a, essentially a regional landing spot, and then you can take your e-bike or your electric vehicle to where your final destination is. I think that's probably more realistic. Because the worst thing for the industry is to have an accident in a populated area early yeah. on and cause a bunch of damage or fire or huge loss of life. That would just be an unbelievable bad mistake. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. 
If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening and please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.